Hello and welcome to GovCast. I am co-host Amy Kluber, Managing Editor of Government CIO Media and Research. And I'm co-host Amanda Ziede, Senior Reporter with Government CIO Media and Research. So today we're talking to Dr. Stacey Dixon. She's the Director of IARPA, Vice Deputy Director. And I'm really excited to have her on and talk to her about not only all the programs that, and projects that IARPA is working on, but kind of how she got to where she was, because I read that she spent time in Capitol Hill and with other agencies. So I'm really excited to learn about how she got to be the director of IARPA. And one thing with technology is that there are pros and cons. So I kind of want to get her take on that. When you're launching all these new things or developing these new things, what are the downsides to that, really? Yeah, and I'm really interested in how she applies her background in STEM to these programs and technologies. Like you said, there's got to be negatives to the positives. So I wonder how she tackles that. And then, of course, get to know what she does in her free time. How does she have time for all this? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Stacey. It's great to be here. Thank you. So before we get into your current role and the amazing things you're doing at IARPA, I want to get a feel for your background. I read that you have a very impressive educational background. You have a doctorate and master's degree in mechanical engineering from the Georgia Institute of Technology, bachelor's in mechanical engineering from Stanford, and you were a chemical engineering postdoctoral fellow at the University of Minnesota. What drew you to this field of science and engineering? So growing up, I was the person in the house who loved to put things together. My parents encouraged that. And even though sort of the DIY, the do-it-yourself phenomenon wasn't quite as big as it is now, there were all sorts of things that would arrive in the house in a box that needed to be assembled. And they would just sort of turn me over and put me in a corner and say, here, go put this together. So they encouraged that desire to build things. And so I naturally gravitated towards mechanical engineering. But I loved math and I loved science. And those were things that were encouraged by my parents and that I just really found myself attracted to from a young age. And that just continued over time. The better you are at something, you find yourself doing well in it. Those accomplishments make you want to be even better. And then when you're also getting the support of family and friends, then something that's very easy to keep going and doing. Mm -hmm. Kind of fall into place. Exactly. Do you have any anecdotes or times you felt overwhelmed during this educational experience or any mentors along the way that helped or anything like that? There were definitely a couple of times that stand out. Going through the PhD process and going through qualifying exams and taking those was definitely an experience that made you Think about yourself. And I would say it's as much hard work and perspiration as it is stubbornness to just make yourself get through it. I didn't get through it the first time around. I had to repeat it, as many people do. And that second time, especially after giving your whole life to studying the first time, makes you really, you either got to want it or you're going to walk away. And I really wanted it. I threw myself into it. That opportunity to express and showcase to professors what I really knew about the subject matter was something that was a huge accomplishment and something that also a necessary goalpost to get past. I definitely had mentors along the way. I mean, there were teachers that really encouraged me in math and science. I mentioned my parents. My dad would spend hours with me helping with homework when I got stuck. I think he really enjoyed that challenge of trying to having to keep up with the subject matter. My godmother was a microbiologist and she had a PhD. I had an uncle who was also a biologist who had a PhD. So the idea of going to college was always there. There was never an opportunity or never a time when I didn't think that I was going to go to college. Going to grad school seemed like it was going to also be something. Getting a PhD wasn't automatically what I thought the path would be. But as I learned more about the process and got into school, I really did enjoy the learning of it and being able to master a particular area was just extremely attractive. Right. Was your intent always to enter the government or intelligence community? Why was that the path that you chose? 
It was not. Despite the fact that I live in D.C. and I'm surrounded by government buildings and really the intelligence apparatus, I had no thoughts about entering that when I left uh, high school here and then went off to college. It was really because when I graduated from school, uh, went to, uh, I went to do a postdoctoral fellowship. Mm-hmm. And when I left there, it was during the recession of 2002, and no one was hiring. Yeah. <laughs> it makes you really think about it. And, and one of the things that happens when industry retracts and isn't hiring is the government is still looking for really good people with technical degrees. And I ran into uh, some colleagues who actually were in the intelligence community. I said, why not? Let me just go ahead and throw my hand, head in the, head my hat in the ring and see what wow. happens. And you know, after sort of waiting for the process to sort of go through, got into the community and I haven't looked back since. It's been a, a wonderful series of opportunities to just learn a lot and really to do something to contribute to national security mm-hmm. and helping this country have an intelligence advantage. Wow, so you never tried your part in industry. It was always government. It was always government, except for summer internships, which were in industry. I still think that I like the idea of people being able to go back and forth, and I hope that we make it easier for people to do that in the future. Mm -hmm. But so far, I haven't quite figured out the opportune time to go and have an industry experience. Right now, I'm having so much fun with IARPA, especially because we get to interact so much with industry and academia that sort of fulfilling that interest area. We hear about it all the time, retaining and attracting good IT talent in government is hard. So it's awesome that you've, you know, felt supported and secured in this position since school. I think the nice thing is I've had the opportunity to change jobs every few years, Mm -hmm. and that really keeps you interested and keeps you growing. And I think as long as that continues to be the possibility that, you know, there's no requirement that I go somewhere else and get these experiences. Having said that, having people come into the government at any point in their career is something that we encourage. So, Mm -hmm. you know, even if you choose not to start in public service in the beginning, we hope later on in your career that you'll consider it. Right. Did you face any challenges or moments of taking this incredibly advanced path of science and engineering in government into the intelligence community, particularly challenging any barriers that you've passed along the way? It's either that I've been oblivious to them or I haven't experienced them. And it's probably some combination of the two. When you really have an assignment and you're asked to do something, I get so focused on that, that it doesn't really matter what's standing in the way. As long as I have the resources that I need and support of the leadership, then I'll just sort of go through. But there's always times when you're competing with others, when there's not enough resources, for example, and you know you succeed only if someone else's project is cut. I so far haven't had to be in too many places where that's been the case. Mm-hmm. I think that probably would have led to some more challenges. So not really. I think maybe it's a bit of luck as well that I haven't had the obstacles in front of me to keep me from succeeding that some people experience in their careers. Mm-hmm. Right. It seems the path you took in government the innovative agencies and projects and departments probably help as well. They're already kind of forward-looking. I think so. They want people in there who are going to come with great ideas and want to work and put that passion into those ideas. And so there's really not a lot of time and effort for all the other stuff that can keep people from being successful. Mm -hmm. Maybe that is something that is partly related to the fact that you're in these sort of high-risk, high-payoff research Mm -hmm. experiences. Totally. All right. So what problem sets in the IC were you drawn to solving, and why were they so important? So it's interesting, when I did come into the intelligence community, I didn't automatically go and just do mechanical engineering. My first job was building satellites, which there was an aspect of that definitely that requires engineering, but I was working on the sensor side, so I was learning a lot about different things like that. Other things that we've been able to apply, it's been more of the scientific discipline, the sort of the ability to ask questions, and then to figure out how do you develop something that's going to answer those questions? How do you then test 
the fact that you've actually achieved whatever it is that you set out to achieve. And so what we do now is try to solve all sorts of problems for all sorts of agencies. And so there isn't one particular discipline, mm -hmm. maybe something from math, as broad as math to something specific as chemical identification to uh, different types of computing to different types of analysis. You can really apply those scientific skills to so many different things and so many different challenges that the country faces. Do you still work on satellites at all or the sensors involved? The sensors, yes. We definitely still work on the sensors. I mean, not me mm -hmm. personally anymore. Right. I, I get to enable others to do some really great work in those areas. I still enjoy keeping up with what's happening in space, especially mm -hmm. because so much of commercial industry is pushing forward with really innovative capabilities that the government can then rely on and leverage as well. But I've definitely moved away from the space to more land-based or aerial and then just other technical capabilities as well. Mm -hmm. Those technologies have probably advanced so much since when you first started. The sensors themselves, I read about the satellite sensors all the time, like getting so much more advanced. You think about the analog can be looking at your phone, right? Like the first phone that I had in 1993 was a big a brick. Block, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It was a block. I mean, it was great because, you know, you had that thing for emergency only. Right. <laughs> and now you look at what we carry around in our pocket. Like technology has moved in the same way as we've seen our phones change, as we've seen televisions change, as we've mm -hmm. seen a lot of our cars change. Yeah, it's crazy. So what does innovating the intelligence community mean to you? It can be interpreted in so many different ways, and we see it from the defense to the civilian agencies, especially from government to industry. So what does that mean to IARPA? So I'm going to answer your question a little bit more broadly, and then I'll get to the IARPA piece. Awesome. So one of the things that I hear when I think of innovation, I don't just think technical. And I think for a lot of people, they think that's someone else's thing to do. Oh, that's for those technical people who are doing research and development. But you can innovate in a lot of ways. Process improvements that help an organization work better, for example, are innovations that are necessary. On the technical side, though, we do try to bring whatever the latest technology is to bear on whatever the problem is. So we're trying to bring capabilities that exist and apply them in different ways or try to push them beyond their limits so they're more sensitive or have a longer distance to work or work for a longer period of time. So we're always trying to push the boundaries on what something is able to do to try to just get that much more performance out of it. All right. And backtracking a little bit, your career path from you spent time on Capitol Hill to the NRO and the NGA, how do these experiences relate to your current role at IARPA? And is this position a blend of those experiences at all? This definitely is. It's been great to bring the technical experience and then even the networks that I've developed in the various agencies, because now IARPA's mission is to look across all of the elements of the intelligence community. And so we do things for NGA, we do things for NRO, we do things for CIA, NSA, DIA, and the military service and the intelligence components of those, as well as organizations like Treasury and State. So our mission space is really big. And because people are so mobile in the government, the people end up in various agencies. So you sort of have this natural network of people who could be your potential transition partners. The technical things that I've learned help us to have better capabilities developed for them. The things that I learned on the Hill were more on the soft side. They're more about sort of the people, more about how do you get the support from people who would be doing oversight over the community to make sure that you're spending your money properly. How do you enable those folks to know enough about what's happening, that they're comfortable, that you're spending taxpayer dollars wisely? And that experience from the Hill was tremendous and something that, unfortunately, not a lot of people have those experiences and then end up back in the agencies. So I definitely stand out and I'm able to use those skill sets. Mm -hmm both to in our interactions with Congress, as well as our interactions with other oversight organizations that we work with. Yeah, if you don't mind me asking, how did those transitions happen, those opportunities come to you from where you started to Capitol Hill to back in this position? 
That's the funny thing. So I've been in government 16 years now, and I have resigned two or three times. Wow. So I've literally <laughs> left jobs to go to other opportunities. And mm-hmm. so I left the NRO to go to the Hill. Mm-hmm. I left the Hill to go to NGA. Thankfully, I haven't had to leave anywhere since then. I've actually been able to do rotational assignments, and that's what I'm on right now. Well, the Hill experience was different. The Hill experience was wanting to understand how the government worked, how funds were appropriated and authorized. How does this thing that we see all the time on television, how does it make our jobs work? How does it make our jobs harder, easier? I wanted to go and figure out that for myself. And having the opportunity on the Hill to work with members of Congress and work with other staffers really educate you on the process. You understand the authorization bills and the appropriation bills. You understand the negotiation that takes place. One of the probably the most interesting lessons I learned is even for those individuals who I disagreed with fundamentally about the approach to things, I understood that they really thought that they were doing the best thing for the country, as I did. And sometimes that helps humanize people who you otherwise would not necessarily agree with. And so the experience was very valuable. But it was one I knew wasn't going to be a permanent one for me because I missed the technology. I missed sort of the consistency of knowing that, you know, math is math, science is science, and you don't have to know someone's alliances and the whims of what's happening today versus tomorrow, and no one's making speeches about things because everything you're doing is so inside. So while politics wasn't a longer-term goal for me, being able to have those skills now is invaluable. While it's not realistic for everyone in government to take a stint in politics that way, do you think it's just as important for, you know, a CTO or a program manager to take that time to learn the other parts of government and why and how it affects their position and maybe trying to innovate internally or purchase technologies or, you know, from that aspect, is it important to learn that whole cycle? Absolutely. I think there's a lot of opportunities inside different agencies to learn about the budget process. Mm -hmm. And while there's certain career fields that it's required, there's many others where it's optional and you can take it. And I encourage people to do that. Same thing with legislative affairs training. Many people can take it. It's not just for people who are going to the Hill or people interacting with the Hill. I think it helps all of us understand better how government works. And then, like you said, taking the capabilities that you learn in one place and being able to know how to apply them better, learning best practices in acquisition from wherever they happen to be, best practices in human resource management. There's a lot of organizations that have figured things out that we can leverage in the government. And government's figured some things out that I think even industry can take advantage of. Yeah, that information sharing is so important both ways, two-way path. So what is it that you're working on right now at IARPA? So we'll jump into your current position. So we've been around for about 11 years, and are we have programs that last from three to five years. And so right now, we've got 30-something programs that are ongoing. And so they vary for anywhere from forecasting programs where you're trying to predict the outcome of things, like you're trying to predict a cyber attack, for example, or you're trying to predict a geopolitical event. We've got things in the computing realm where we're trying to build superconducting computing or trying to build elements of a quantum computer, trying to figure out how the mind works so that we can better model and make our algorithms mimic what the mind actually does when it's trying to, for example, when it identifies an object. Chemical detection programs so that we can know from far away if someone's been handling narcotics or explosives so we can make our airports more secure, for example. Really, it's a very broad research portfolio. We've got programs in the social sciences where we're trying to improve the quality of analysis, improve the quality of the lessons that we learn from intelligence predictions that we make, as well as trying to understand the people in our workforce better and how do you leverage the sensors that we have all around us to try to get a sense of people and how fit they are for the work that they're doing. Which one is more futuristic to you when you look at all these, the coolest 
going on? Probably some of the most basic things we're doing are the ones that are involved in neuroscience, so understanding the mind. And so whether that is literally trying to understand very small components of the mind so that we can model those algorithms after them. One of the newest programs that we're trying to start is trying to figure out if you can store information in polymers. And so the best analogy is like, I want to use someone's DNA. I want to use not necessarily a person, but I want to use DNA, the building blocks of DNA to store information. You can put the entire Library of Congress in a teeny vial of DNA. Think of the storage possibilities of being able to have something like that that can last 100 years and not need to be recapitalized every few years like our IT really does right now. How game-changing that will be if we can figure that out. How do you oversee all these many different We have 20-something fantastic program managers that are experts in their fields. They come with fantastic ideas and really just need resources and the infrastructure that IOPA provides to allow them to develop a research program that, for the most part, anyone in the world who's an expert in that can be part of their programs. And so we have industry and academia, both within the U.S. as well as in other countries that are participating in these research programs. So we give them the infrastructure, we encourage them, we give them some sort of bounds, and then we try to get out of the way. That's the best thing I can do for those folks. Nice. Do you ever pop in, hey, how's it going in here? <laughs> well, so every going? every year, all of them have to do two program reviews. So every six okay. months, they do a program review. So yes, we definitely get the pop in. Pop and in. and they're, always, they're always letting us know about the things that they're accomplishing along the way. So it's very exciting to see the types of things that are happening in the research, especially when they're able to achieve something that's even better than what they thought they were going to be able to do. But even when they fail to achieve it, We've still learned something really important in science, and we try to make sure that we're sharing those lessons just the same way we want to share all the really good things we're able to succeed. Is there an example of a program that's like fulfilled its life cycle and had an outcome? Yes, there definitely are. There are a number of programs we've started that have reached that end, especially given the five-year timeline of the mm-hmm. program and the 11-year existence of us, of IARPA. Makes sense. The ones that have been completed that have probably made the most difference have involved a facial recognition as well as speech recognition and transcription. So one, recognizing individuals. You know, there's a lot of facial recognition that's out there, and a lot of it requires really good pictures. You want to be able to essentially take the kinds of pictures you see people randomly taking on their phones with, you know, the lighting's not right, the angle's weird. You know, sometimes you're seeing the side of someone's face and still be able to recognize an individual. We've been able to deliver capabilities and software that became the gold standard in government. And we've actually pushed past that now. We're trying to make it even better so that we can have that sort of flexibility in the pictures. And then with the speech recognition, there's a lot of people who can translate the very popular languages around the world. But there's a lot of languages in the world that very few people speak. I mean, less than a million people will speak a particular language. But it may be in a part of a country that we really need to know what's happening. So we want to be able to recognize that really quickly. And we figured out how to train algorithms to do that with a limited amount of data in a very short amount of time so that the partners who need to know really quickly, okay, who do I need to translate this? Their information can be triaged very quickly to get to the people that need to get it. It's crazy the technologies that we're using on our phone for fun or everyday use is being used Absolutely. For intelligence. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. it really is. And that's an interesting point because I think people forget that. Mm-hmm. There's this reaction that some individuals have, oh, I don't want to do this for the government or I don't want to do this for military purposes or whatever the case may be or intelligence purposes. But so much of the technology is universal that something you're going to do better to help recognize your friends and your name your social media platform. Those are the same tools and techniques that are going to help keep the country safe and really allow us to identify people who may seek to do harm in the country. Mm-hmm. And then how do you share those outcomes and technologies and discoveries with the entire intelligence community? Is it just nationwide or, you know, globally? 
It's both, and actually even beyond the intelligence community as well. So within, we share with our partners who are potential transition partners. So they keep up with our program from beginning to end. We have international partners within intelligence and the national security organizations that also can benefit from our research. And then finally, because so much of our research is actually published and published by the performers or by academia and industry and shared broadly with anyone who has opportunity to get that journal or really can go online and get the information, that it benefits way more than just the intelligence community. And I think that's one of the nice things about IARPA is that even though our mission is intelligence and national security, the benefits go so far beyond that to really not only just the country, but the larger world. What makes you so passionate about innovating the IC and, like you said, the rest of the world and all of its partners? What's missing or being worked on And what's more future-looking that excites you? So is there a gap right now that you're really working towards filling innovation-wise in the IC community? And what's so far ahead that kind of makes you driven to continue? I'm glad you asked the question about the gap because we're always looking to make sure that we are investing in things that others aren't. And even if we are investing in a similar area, we always look and try to make sure what the other intelligence agencies are doing because we don't want to duplicate. We look and see what industry and academia are doing. If industry already has programs in something, The government can just purchase those, so we don't want to replicate that. But there are things that we found that don't have necessarily a good business case in industry, and so there is less investment. One of those things is AI security. Specifically, how do you ensure that the algorithms that we're using aren't manipulated and that things aren't being hidden in them before we have an opportunity to actually apply them? Mm -hmm. This is something that research is starting in these areas, but given the prevalence of artificial intelligence and machine learning, We really need to be thinking about that and building it in from the beginning and making algorithms that are robust against those kinds of attacks. It's something that's missing right now. And so Mm -hmm. we're trying to spur innovation in those areas and have two small programs that are starting to enable us to do that. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's such a big topic right now. Every time we discuss AI, ethics, security. It's going to be something that it's already impacting the way that we live our lives. Mm -hmm. There's going to be even more interactions with artificial intelligence going on. Let's make sure that while we take advantage of the strengths that we don't leave ourselves open to the weaknesses and understanding. There's already sort of a lack of understanding of how these algorithms work, what makes them so good. It's been a challenge to understand that for many of them. And while there are programs that are trying to do that, We also need to say, okay, we don't understand it perfectly. Is there still a way to be confident in what we're we're getting out of it? That's the place where we think that we have the ability to add something to what's being done. That's a gap we saw that we want to make sure is filled by the research that we're investing in. Wonderful. And looking at a whole at the IC community, how have you seen it change throughout the years? It's interesting. My experience in it is short and long at the same time. I mean, so 16 years is long enough to have seen the director of national intelligence come into existence. What I've seen, especially in the technical space, is the partnerships and the collaboration between the different agencies. There is a very strong community of researchers that I'm not quite sure had the same ability to interact that they do now, and the willingness to interact and partner to really try to push the field forward, to really try to accomplish those really tough challenges that can only be solved with science and technology. I see that now, and I see the entities within the Director of National Intelligence that have helped us get to this point. The challenges keep coming, right? And I think there are a lot less nation state, as we've heard, and there are a lot more individual or smaller country or smaller group led. So being able to be flexible, to react to the new threats as they come, and there's new threats, frankly, every year we see new threats. We see new technical capabilities. All the great technology that's emerging has both good implications and negative implications. So our job becomes harder because we have more things now to keep up with. And there's also the question of 
how people will apply a technology. It may be developed to do a certain thing. Someone else may apply it in an entirely different way, and that may just be disruptive beyond what we can imagine. So part of what we have to do is try to imagine those disruptions and try to be ready for them and prepared for them in the event that someone actually pushes that forward. Yeah, how do you keep up with all the emerging threats, especially when there are these new programs happening? And, you know, like you said, with new tech comes new threats and cybersecurity challenges. How do you keep up with those with these 30 programs? So part of it is, again, relying on the program managers. They not only know their network within the intelligence community, but they also keep up with a lot of academic and industry researchers, both internationally and within the country. And so they know what's happening. They know the types of achievements that are happening in the research space. And we'll raise them to you know our concern level to make sure that we're aware that this is changing very rapidly. We might want to keep an eye on this. Or this new organization over here is applying this in a way that no one ever thought possible. And that makes this possible, that no one envisioned being able to be done for 10 years. And all of a sudden, we're able to do it now in only a year since the capability came about. So we rely on them very heavily. And just reading the articles and trying to make sure that you are keeping up with all sorts of publications. So they will keep up with many of them. We keep up with some. There's a lot of emerging trend research that is published that tries to consolidate that. So it's really just trying to make sure that all of these different inputs, Mm -hmm. that we have the ability to read them and then process that as quickly as possible. How do you think is the most impactful way you support these program managers? They would probably say, she gives me a good budget, and then she gets (laughs) out of the way. I think we also make sure that the rigor is there. So we want to make sure that the science has to be good, the idea has to be good, and something that will actually make a difference in someone's mission. We can help introduce them to people in the community that need to know that they're working on this research. We can make sure they know that their funding is consistent so that they know year to year how much they're going to have to spend on this. We try to move very quickly to let them know the other threats that are coming and the ones that we can actually know about. So it's a combination of things, but trying to make sure that the things that enable their research or things that that they don't have to worry about. And it's not perfect. That's the other thing they would tell me. There's always improvements. We can move faster than we have. We can keep the bureaucracy low. We can try to get the barriers out of the way a little bit more quickly. But I think those are the things that we do that help them do their jobs. So something we like to talk about on GovCast is the person themselves. Questions that are a little bit more personal to you and who you are. Is there a philosophy or motto that you follow that you try to follow every day or believe in? One of the things that I try to always challenge people to do is to set what seem like unattainable goals. Because if you set a goal that's too small, you'll never accomplish anything really big. If you set a goal that you're really not sure you're going to be able to accomplish, even if you don't succeed, you're going to have accomplished something great. And so I'm always trying to challenge others and challenge myself to think that way, Mm -hmm. to always try to go and do something bigger than or more than you actually even think possible. I think it's like shoot for the moon, and if you miss it, that's the one. Yes, (laughs) was like yeah, that makes sense. And as a native to DC, did you grow up in the city or in? I did DC proper. Yes. Nice. So, how have you seen it change over the years from an innovation and technology standpoint? And does that at all impact your career path and even the way that you think in this global intelligence community aspect? So my guess is this place was very innovative even before I knew and thought about the intelligence community or the government. But certainly since I've been in the community, I have seen more innovative companies coming to the area and our ability to acquire services from very innovative organizations. The amount of work continues to increase. The amount of talent that we need to leverage continues to increase. Our ability to reach across the country and across the world only gets better with all the technology that's out there. And so we're able to, I think in comparison to days when 
You know, they didn't have the computers. They didn't have the phones actually to be able to, you know, you couldn't do a teleconference with several different people on at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like our ability to collaborate and to move together jointly to get something done has increased tremendously. And that just allows us to innovate more. And I read that you spent time abroad. Was this for a school during college or? This was actually after college. So it was actually after my postdoc. Mm -hmm. I decided that before I actually started whatever the real job was going to be, entered that real (laughs) world, that I would take some time off. And that was part of a three-month out-of-country experience that I had. But I went and studied in Spain for a month and just had a great time trying to improve my Spanish, learn a different culture, Mm -hmm. live with a host family, and really just enjoy, take excursions out to other countries in Europe and take advantage of this wonderful world that we live in. Do you travel often now or? Yes and no. Not quite the same level, never for three months at a time like that anymore. I do try to get to a different place every year. Some of that involves these days more beach vacations than anything, just to (laughs) get a chance to get away and sort of decompress Mm -hmm. so I can come back, you know, a clearer headed person for the workforce. But I still love going to new places and just exploring what the cultures have to offer, exploring the food, exploring the crafts, exploring the markets, Mm -hmm. meeting the new people, and really just taking it all in. So yeah, I do have that travel bug still. I'm sure it brings a fresh perspective for working for our government, seeing how other countries culturally and naturally live. It does. I think think it helps me appreciate this country more in some ways. And it also helps in some ways to give us something to aspire to in other ways, because especially living in D.C., We all move so fast. Yeah. You know, sort of that taking the time to kind of smell the roses is not something that we all live by. And so when you go to other countries that don't quite have the same, whether it's infrastructure, uh, internet infrastructure, or even just infrastructure, infrastructure, you learn to live in a different way. Mm -hmm. And I think bringing that back and trying to incorporate a little bit more of that in our lives is something that could benefit us all. Yeah, definitely. So closing question. Do you plan to still be innovating the intelligence community or government as a whole in five or 10 years? What my career has shown me to date, that probably should be a yes or no question. So the the, the short answer is probably (laughs) yes. But what my career has shown me to date is you never know what opportunities are going to come your way. And while I may think I may know what I'll be doing in five to 10 years, the truth is I don't know what's going to actually show up that moment when I'm looking for the next opportunity. Mm -hmm. And what I have learned so far is that The opportunities that come are not necessarily the ones that I thought would come, but they've been fantastic ones that I've tried so far. So will I be innovating? Yes. Will I still be in the intelligence community or supporting it in some way? I sure hope so. Will I still be in government? I see no reason not to be, although I still would like to have an industry opportunity at some point in time in my career. But being able to support this country, whether inside the government or outside the government, is something that I definitely see myself doing. And if listeners want to track or keep up with the 30 programs that you're helping to oversee, how can they do that? Our website, www.iarpa.gov, is the easiest way. And all the programs are up there, including links to publications, information for our program managers, new opportunities that are coming their way in case they want to bid on them or propose to them. So that's the best way to keep up with this. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you.